This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. I didn't see anybody who looked like me, anybody who looked like you who was doing this. I saw young, white, male, fresh out of college on a gap year, you know, I saw people backpacking across Europe kind of stuff. There were no stories of grown adults, (laughs) people who already had established careers like I did, having already taught for 10 years, I think, at that point, picking up and, and moving. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered. Free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens. Free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. I'm excited for this episode of the Blacksit Global podcast because I get to reunite with a guest that I had on the Blacksit Global YouTube channel. You might know her as a Christian wife, a nomadic chef, a world schooling mom. We have returning Karen Ricks, who is joining us this time from Guanajuato, Mexico. Thank you so much for having me back, Krishan. It is a joy to join you again from a different continent. Yes. <laughs> the world, it feels like. <laughs> yes, yes. When we last spoke, you were world schooling and telling us all about life in Albania. Now you are in Mexico. And for People who have not watched that live or who aren't familiar, why don't we start at the beginning? The beginning. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I usually start with the tales of my husband and I traveling all over the United States. We got married and crisscrossed the country teaching and first brought up the idea of traveling abroad just a couple of years into our marriage. And we've been you know, traveling internationally as a couple, just, you know, vacationing. But when he suggested actually picking up and living somewhere different, I first laughed him off. I thought it was an insane idea. I was like, you want to do what? No. (laughs) So yeah, our first conversations around that were really him saying, yes, I would love to pick up and move and teach somewhere else in the world. I was telling him basically, no, that sounds ridiculous. What you really want to do is visit somewhere and then come back to our quote unquote normal life in the U.S., right? (laughs) So um, we had these conversations. Uh, It it probably took him about four years 
to convince me. And that long, wow. That, yeah, I was really dragging my feet. I was comfortable. I enjoyed what I was doing. And, you know, I liked our life in the United States. I liked vacationing. I liked traveling abroad. We did that. But the idea of picking up and moving to a different country was such a foreign concept that it just took me forever to come around. But when I finally did, um, he had received a job offer. He had gotten recruited by the largest English language school in all of Japan to go and teach there for a year. So he had a contract in place. And all I was going to do was pick up and travel with him for a while. And then we were going to return back to our, again, quote unquote, normal life. That was back in 2007. And here we are now, <laughs> 2022. You know, we picked up, we moved, and we didn't look back. <laughs> we spent 10 years in Japan, and it was marvelous. Our son was born there. I founded an international Montessori school there. We had a wonderful, thriving community. We loved teaching. We were involved in our church, uh, a great community of other foreign residents in Japan. It was marvelous. And then I received an invitation to uh, participate in this amazing cooking program at a school in Italy. And this was this incredible once in a lifetime sort of thing. So we talked about it as a family and sold it all, packed up our life in Japan, and we moved to Sicily. <laughs> and that began our nomadic adventures, which is what we've been doing for the past five and a half years now, I guess. <laughs> we moved from Japan to Italy and we just kind of kept going. We realized really kind of organically what digital nomadism was, that we had not only the ability, but the means to pick up and move from one country to another to continue the work that we were doing online uninterrupted. And so we just kind of followed our hearts, followed opportunities, followed our curiosity. It's been uh, about a dozen different countries, I guess, now on four different continents. And we just keep going and we're having a blast. And it is just such a blessing. There's so much to unpack there. I want to back up a little bit because I think this part of the conversation is really going to be helpful for people who can identify with your situation, being the spouse that was the resistant spouse, yes. or they're the ones that want to move abroad, but mm -hmm. they have a resistant spouse. So yeah. they may have, like you guys, traveled on vacations to different countries, but the idea, mm -hmm. the ability to contemplate a day-to-day -day in a foreign country was too much of a leap. So yes. I know you talked about your husband having this contract and then going from, hey, let's move abroad to, hey, we're going to go to Japan. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but, yes. you know, aside from the contract, I know you talked about that four years that it took you to arrive at that place. Is there a particular conversation thread or technique or maybe soul work that you did with yourself that uh, allowed you to get to that place where you were able to say yes? You know, so much happened as I look back in hindsight, obviously, at those four years from the time that my husband first broached the idea to us actually packing our bags and moving to cross oceans and continents to live in this place that was to us completely foreign. One of the reasons that I absolutely love sharing our stories with podcasts such as yours is 
the biggest block that I had to overcome was just there was so much that I did not know. My imagination was not broad enough to expand my idea of self, of identity. Uh, just, I couldn't picture myself living that kind of lifestyle because I didn't know anybody who had ever done anything like that. I'd never heard of anybody doing anything like that. And once my husband and I really seriously got into conversation again about what that might look like, and I started searching to find stories of other people who had made a leap like that. The stories were few and far between, first and foremost. Again, we're talking, you know, 15 plus years ago. But also, I didn't see anybody who looked like me, anybody who looked like you, who was doing this. I saw young, white, male, fresh out of college on a gap year. You know, I saw people backpacking across Europe kind of stuff. There were no stories of grown adults, <laughs> people who already had established careers like I did, having already taught for 10 years, I think, at that point, picking up and, and moving and, you know, like taking what essentially amounted to a sabbatical <laughs> for me personally in order to make that mental shift to leaving the classroom in the United States to be essentially a trailing spouse of you know, another professional in another country, in another culture, in another language. But once I began to ponder the idea, I kind of got excited. I mean, who in their mid-30s thinks about, or early 30s, you know, whatever I was at the time, thinks about taking a sabbatical and picking up and essentially starting life over. <laughs> I, I started reading stories, not just searching for other Americans who had gone to teach in foreign countries, but what was the life of like a Japanese housewife? Because that was essentially what I was going to do. I was just going to go and be a housewife in Japan. What could that look like? And when I started to consider the possibilities, then I got really <laughs> excited. I was like, wow, I could, you know, explore all of these things that I'd never considered or just didn't have time for before. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Again, the broader my imagination began to grow, the more excited I became about the possibilities. And once we were in Japan, <laughs> then it was just like, it was mind expanding on an entirely new level. It sounds that way because you talked about being a trailing spouse. And I've had other trailing spouses on the show that have talked about giving up careers for their a spouse to go and seek another opportunity in another country. And that confrontation with uh, identity loss or trying to reestablish the identity. And then mm -hmm. it sounds like you were able to do that with establishing the Montessori school, mm -hmm. you know, deciding to have your son there. It sounds like you didn't even allow the even the language barrier to stand in your way of living <laughs> your best life. Because I, I know oh. when I hear you say, hey, we moved to Japan and I started a school. I'm like, wait, how? <laughs> You're absolutely right. It it started with 
me really just shaking up my entire personal perspective, not just as a Black woman, but as a wife, as a professional, just as a curious individual who already loved traveling the world. Picking that Karen from back before 2007 out of the United States, out of the classroom, out of this teaching career, and placing her in Japan. And not Tokyo, mind you. We were in central Japan, hours outside of the big city. Not like a totally rural, out-of-the-way area. It was still a relatively large city, like a quarter of a million people or something. But not in the center of what everybody knows and thinks of when they see major media representation of Japan. It was a lot. But it also really emboldened me as to what I was capable of. Because I was capable of picking up and shifting my life to another country where I literally knew no one except my husband. <laughs> where I had you know, studied a few CDs so I could do some basic greetings, but I was functionally illiterate all over again. That is a major challenge to overcome. And so to go from that to having local business owners actually approached me about the possibility of collaborating, which was part of what encouraged me to open up my school when I did. Just the recognition that I am so much more than who my limited imagination believed I could be. And stepping outside of my comfort zone, outside of U.S. borders, really just gave me the freedom to spread my wings and fly in so many directions that I never saw were possible before. Oh my gosh, you're inspiring me on so many levels. <laughs> you know, you talked about a little bit at the top of our conversation about world schooling your son. Yeah. So for people who are unfamiliar with the term mm -hmm. or the concept, can you explain what that is? Sure. World schooling for us is literally learning from every person we meet, every place we go, every activity in which we engage ourselves. The world is our classroom. And for people who've never heard of it before, it sounds really wildly unfamiliar. I like to talk to people about it as like homeschooling, but it's been expanded beyond the four walls of the home. And for anybody who is already familiar with homeschooling, you know that homeschooling doesn't just happen at home. You don't stay in the house. Uh, it's easy to, you know, pop here and there and everywhere all over your community. Well, for us, world schooling has just given us the freedom to expand what that definition of community can look like. And so we literally just learn on the go. And so we're homeschooling, unschooling, just learning from daily life. Uh, and it just, that just happens to take place in dozens of different cities, different countries on different continents. And world schooling doesn't have to be as mobile as we are. We are a pretty mobile family. <laughs> but uh, it's really more about expanding the concept of what learning looks like and where it has to or where it can happen. Because it just, it literally happens everywhere. That's so impactful. And you and your husband are both educators. And, you know, you could have gone the traditional route or the Montessori. And getting into world schooling, unschooling, it seems like it fits right into that leap that you all did of being, you know, boundless 
in terms of borders and embracing different cultures and experiences, and then opening the door to those opportunities for your son. How old is he? He is 11 now. Oh my gosh. So he's 11. (laughs) What is his experience or has he shared with you all some of the triumphs and the challenges? You know, obviously you all are his primary educators and the rest of the world is his Mm -hmm. classroom. But are there times where there might be challenges either with new languages or being able to fit in? Has that been an issue at all? Oh, sure. I mean, the same kinds of challenges that people have everywhere. What's fascinating for me, though, as I watch my son, because I've learned so much from him, too, is just how flexible he is, how adaptable he is to so many different environments. I mean, keep in mind, he has known this self-directed form of education his entire life. We opened the doors to our international Montessori school in Japan when he was literally just four months old. So he grew up and spent the first six years of his life in that Montessori environment that we created, a classroom in which there are no bells, no schedules that says reading is at this time and math is at this time or whatever. It's um, an open learning environment in which children select what they want to learn, what they want to practice, what they want to study, what they're interested in. And from my perspective as the adult in the learning environment to observe those interests and continue to provide them with the tools and the means to dive as deeply and to learn as much as they want when they ask for it. So it really removes the sort of uh, artificial barriers, the arbitrary kind of hierarchy of what normally happens in a school In our school, because we had such a broad range of staff and families, children who were participating, we already did things like study different languages and cultural traditions uh, and things like that just because of the international makeup of our school. So we regularly had festivals, parties where we celebrated uh, cultural holidays and events from around the world. And families that had these different cultural backgrounds would Uh, share and help to educate the entire community. We did loads of cooking together. (laughs) Uh, And that's not just me as the cook I'm leading, but helping to share a lot of the different culinary traditions from around the world. Uh, We traveled, we wandered all around our community going for walks and learning about the different things that were happening within our Japanese community. And all of those things were just the sort of natural things that I always wanted to do, that I always imagined I would do, homeschooling my own child. The main difference I like to explain is just that I happened to put what we were doing in the middle of a downtown building, and then I opened the doors for other like-minded families to come and join us. And so we had wonderful opportunities for music and dance and art like I said, languages and cultural celebrations and cooking and reading in various languages and all of these different things that we did, not just with the children who were regularly attending our school Monday through Friday, but we had after school programs and weekend cooking and baking events and pop-up restaurants and all of these different things that we did within our community. And that was like kind of, you know, the first half of my son's educational experience as it were. 
And then we picked up and we moved to Italy. And as a family, that was our decision. And so as a family, we began to study Italian. And when we moved, he made friends, you know, going to the local park and chatting up the cashier in the grocery store that we would go to on a regular basis and visiting the, the cooking school where I was studying and the farms where I was learning. And that became a part of his education. And it wasn't any different to his mind or to my mind from what we had been doing at our school in Japan. It just was no longer confined to this one city, to this one building or to this, you know, small geographic community on this, you know, island out in this part of the world. We had just picked up and moved and we're continuing to do what we had always done. Does that make sense? Totally. And it, it makes me think like my son is 22. My daughter is 16. And as I have these accumulating travel experiences and I look at their upbringing, their education exposure, especially as compared to mine, and I grew up in the Bronx, I have seen the quality of the educational experience degrade over time, unfortunately. And now in the season where she's about to go to college, my son is in college, and, you know, they love college. Well, she's getting excited about college. (laughs) He loves college, and he just started. And getting excited. And he needed that break because going back to what I was saying about the the degradation of the educational system in the United States is teach for the test and everything's rote. The teachers aren't inspired because they're not able to allow their creativity to come through in a lot of ways to be inspiring to the children because of all this, you know, compulsory mandates and all of these things. Even just the exposure, the books that they have, it's just a very limited view of history, regardless of of whose history we're talking about. It comes from a very US-centric perspective. And the things that I was exposed to in my upbringing were, you know, we would go to the library, we would go to the different museums. We had at my high school, an international club, and they traveled to different countries. You know, my kids, when they were in a private school for a number of years, they definitely had like the classroom where they were able to do a lot of experiential things and learning. But then as they got into the higher grades, you know, we migrated them into public school. Now that they're older, and they have that perspective, they're like, these were like the worst years, <laughs> you know, when you oh, had no. to fit back in. And even as we migrated from the pandemic, you know, my daughter was still in school. My son had already graduated and she was home for nearly two years with me. She enjoyed being able to be home and she enjoyed the freedom of being able, you know, she still had to get up, but it wasn't like this constant doldrum day to day and rote kind of learning. And each child learns differently. Some people have managed through the the pandemic and our version of homeschooling, right? But oftentimes I heard from a lot of people who had their children in traditional educational environments, all the things that, oh, this is terrible, what they're missing and all of these. And I couldn't jump on the bandwagon with that because one, I was having a very different experience with my child. And two, I didn't have this 
view that the educational system in the United States is like above par, right? So it was it's always a struggle point. And when I get the opportunity to have conversations with people like yourself, when I get the opportunity to go to other countries and ask people who are native to that environment or even foreigners who have children there, and even my own observations, I'm able to see that there is a zest for life and there yeah. is a an expanded knowledge of other cultures, of other languages, <laughs> um, more than their native tongue. And that I feel, especially as I get older and I'm about to embark on my journey, that there's this sense of so much that we've missed and been shortchanged in America. And I see that now as I'm I'm starting to embark on language classes and prep for my Blacksit. And I'm excited about it. You know, it's just different than when I, you know, quote unquote, took Spanish for eight years and, and know very little. You bring up such an important point here, Krishan, and I really want to emphasize this, especially for parents of young children, because just like I needed to reimagine what my life could look like as an adult moving to another country and living in a different culture, in a different language, uh, in a totally foreign to me place, I also began to expand my view of what an education could look like. And remember, I had been a career teacher already in the United States for like a decade or so. With the birth of my child, with, you know, our growing travels, stumbling into this world schooling as a, a movement has been just as big an awakening as learning about expat life outside of our passport country as digital nomadism has been and moving all around the world. It's a completely different perspective on what learning can look like. And lots of people talk about, oh, we homeschool our children or we unschool. And people think that that looks a lot like traditional school in the house. But it is so completely not that, in our, in our case, at least. It can be. It certainly can be for other families. I mean, the journey can look just as different as every single different family out there. But it can be so much broader than that. And you talk about you know, the decline of education. And I feel like really what the pandemic did was kind of help accelerate everybody else's perspective of the life that we had already been living for years, working and learning online, <laughs> uh, connecting with people around the world, accessing educational content, things that were just of interest as the interests arise and accessing them at our leisure. It's a marvelous way, not just to learn, but to live your life. And when you have the freedom to follow those things about which you're curious or passionate, I mean, you cannot stop the learning. It just accelerates at an exponential level. And there's no need for the sorts of external manipulation and the, the fights and the bargaining and the tears and the drama that so many parents came crying to me about during what I really call panic schooling. It was not even homeschooling at you know the height of the pandemic when there were lockdowns and everybody suddenly and unexpectedly found themselves at home. 
that's not homeschooling, <laughs> not in any way, shape or form. But again, we've had this opportunity now because everything in the world has shifted over the last couple of years. And now people have an opportunity to see that not only do things not have to be the way they always have been, but for so many people, that was so completely unsustainable as to not even be anything that you want to consider going back to. So we've seen that not only does it not have to be that way, but it can be so many more exciting, beautiful, fantastic, fun other ways. The question isn't, do you want to do things differently? It's how do you want your educational journey, your career, your life to look. And you can dream about where you want that to happen, how you want it to look, what kinds of things you want to do. And it's possible to make that happen. And that's what's so exciting about our travels, our journeys, because with every new city or country we pick up and, and move to, we have an opportunity to reimagine what we want that to look like. And it continues to grow and expand in ways that we would never have dreamed possible, even just when we packed up to leave Japan back in 2016. <laughs> I love this because you're talking so much about tapping into that boundless sense of imagination and curiosity that we all had as yes. children that over time, as we are adults, gets further and further away and giving yourself, to. Yeah. it doesn't have to. And so no. giving yourself permission, mm -hmm. even if you're not quite ready to leave the country, mm -hmm. but just to give yourself permission to close your eyes. I mean, it's like I start the podcast and that's intentional, right? Yes. It's to close your eyes and imagine living a life you love. Yes. You, a life there. from which you don't have to take a vacation. Although yes. we do that too. <laughs> exactly. So you're in Mexico. Wow. But a different part than when you were originally, correct? Exactly. When okay. we first came to Mexico back in 2017, it was not too long actually after we'd left Italy. We had spent some time in London before coming back to North America. And we were on the Pacific coast, right on the beach, which is <laughs> close to the water, my heart, my love. Um, we were actually just up the beach from Puerto Vallarta. So we had a chance to visit that port city again before we came to Guanajuato, which is in central Mexico, just a little bit north of Mexico City now. And they're two completely different lifestyles, completely different communities. It's two different ways of life. I mean, Guanajuato is uh, like mile high elevation. So that in and of itself is a whole different way of living and still a period of adjustment, <laughs> hiking up these hills and uh, with lots of stairs and narrow alleys and steep streets. But it's beautiful. And in a lot of ways, it reminds me of Sicily. It's beautiful. But again, it's a very different kind of lifestyle, a different way to live. How are you embracing being exposed and having this new backdrop? <laughs> well, one of the beautiful things about being world schoolers is that the connections that we have made through various online communities have really shrunk the globe for us. You know, when we set off on this journey so many years ago, it felt like, you know, just wandering off into the unknown. But the longer we do this, the more people we meet, the more we get to know people 
in various corners of the globe before we ever travel there. So the reason we decided to come to Guanajuato specifically, a city we'd never visited before, was because of a world schooling event, a conference that gathered families just like us from all around the world. Uh, so there were about uh, probably 150 participants or so that were here for a week. And we had a chance to hang out, to chat, to share our stories, our tales of adventure, our hopes and dreams and fears. And because I had been working with the organizer online for years, this was just the first time that we had been on the same continent actually in a while. Um, so her invitation to me to come and be a speaker, one of the presenters here for the conference, uh, was what drew us to this city. And so unlike, you know, back in 2007, when my husband and I left for Japan, and we literally didn't know anybody and <laughs> couldn't read, speak, write, whatever. <laughs> this felt more like, you know, just going to visit a different part of town, really. We were already familiar with Mexico, because my husband and I both grew up in Southern California. So we have passable Spanish skills. So it didn't feel like there was a significant language barrier. Like I said, we did stop in Puerto Vallarta to vacation for a little bit before we transitioned to the center here. But when we landed here, we knew people. Some people that, you know, like I said, we had known and met and been working with online. Some people that we were just meeting in person for the first time, but it felt like, you know, long lost friends that we were just coming to hang out with. And so that idea that, you know, my child, again, an only child who's been traveling around the world, you know, with his parents, <laughs> he could have been like this isolated loner. I know that's this horrible stereotype that happens with homeschoolers and with only children, but he came together with uh, the various families that gathered for this conference. And again, it was just like he was hanging out with, you know, long lost friends, children he had connected with and been um, playing video games with online from Albania or <laughs> wherever, you know, they finally got to meet in person. And he met others for the first time. And they connected immediately over, you know, some of the places that we have traveled or their love of some of the same games or anime or whatever. And I had no worries whatsoever about dropping him off at the beginning of the conference day, which uh, was like a nine to five schedule kind of, or nine to six maybe most of the week, which is totally an abnormal schedule for us. We're night owls as a family. We typically, you know, might not wake up until 11 or 12 even <laughs> and go on late into the night. But again, this lifestyle lends itself to flexibility. And so we changed our schedule to conform with the conference schedule. And while he was hanging out with his peers in the park, playing games and getting to know one another, you know, I was presenting and learning from other world schooling parents like myself who have traveled to different parts of the globe and who have, you know, multiple children or have had different experiences in places that we have yet to travel. And I'm busy taking notes about, okay, so now when we go to this country and this continent, I know that we'll want to go hang out at this park. And I've got the names of like restaurants that we want to visit and special shops that we want to go and patronize and, you know, tours to take and places to hang out. And we're a big community that just happens to come together intermittently, sort of like uh, you might for a family reunion or something, you know, people with whom you have a connection, but you don't see all the time face to face. And it is amazing, the stuff that happens in the short time when we do come together. But 
it's so much less of like this wild blind kind of leap that I felt we were taking this leap of faith when my husband and I left back in 2007 to move from the US to Japan that was just us and we were out on our own off into who knows what but now we have this community of people who can kind of show us the way you know provide some helpful hints before we land and we have this experience under our belts that says, hey, you know, we can actually pick up and move to a country where we know no one and where we don't speak the language and we can still thrive. We did that moving to Japan. <laughs> we did that uh, actually after our second trip in Italy when we landed in Albania. We didn't know anybody there. We didn't know anything about the history, the culture. That was the first place that we had gone where we literally spoke zero words of the local language. And within a week or two, we were like, wow, we're at home. This place is wonderful and the people are welcoming and we can make this work here. And the more experiences like that that you have under your belt, again, the more empowering it is to know that, you know, we can thrive anywhere we choose. And that is the most wonderful education. I feel like we as parents not only can provide for our son, but that we can live for ourselves. You know, as parents, we tell our kids all the time, oh, you know, you can be what you want, you can do what you want. But so many of us don't really and truly live our lives that way. So we're not just talking the talk, but we want to walk the walk too. Oh, and you are a shining example. And I know that in our last conversation, we were talking and you have your YouTube channel, Our Kitchen yeah. Classroom. Yes. And what I love about our kitchen classroom and what you do is that you bring that nomadic life into your approach to cooking. And yeah. so you aren't bound by this kind of traditional construct. Can you talk a little bit about our kitchen classroom, why you feel like it's it's important to have that as an option for people to embrace not just, you know, they may not be able to embrace wanderlust, but <laughs> they can get their cook on. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I grew up cooking. I started cooking when I was six years old. You know, my mother was a career educator herself, was really one for providing support and encouragement and getting out of the way. So I remember asking my mother one day how she made something that I really enjoyed and she pointed to the side shelf where she kept a stack of cookbooks. She said, you can find a recipe in there. You know how to read and follow instructions, go to town. <laughs> and so I will forever be grateful to her for providing me with that kind of a foundation for not just learning, but this desire that I had to create, you know, to do something that I enjoyed doing. And what completely shocked me as an educator was I got into the classroom and I had young children, not just in my, you know, preschool classrooms, Montessori environments with children between the ages of three and six. But even when I was in an elementary environment with children between the ages of like six and 12, with young people who had never had that opportunity, they didn't have the freedom to prepare their own meals, like not even making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which I'm like, come on, any young child can do that with, you know, practice and very little oversight. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing that causes a lot of fear about mess and danger and stuff like that. 
But when I moved to Japan, it was even more shocking than that because the culture that encourages this idea of a very attentive、uh, housewife and mother had women that I knew with even teenage children who did not prepare their own meals, like not even making a lunch to go to school. I knew. Japanese moms who would get up an hour or more earlier than the rest of their family to make lunches, not just for elementary school children, but even for teenagers going to high school, for husbands going off to work. And that was their responsibility. And I thought, well, that's fantastic if that's what you love to do. But if you have a young child who wants to help, who wants to learn, who wants to participate, let them in. And for some of the Japanese moms with whom I was working when I first started teaching, That again was a completely foreign concept. They were like, but I don't know how to do that. In fact, I lock the kitchen door. My children are not allowed in the kitchen. And I said, okay, well, let's change that. And so,、uh, as I said, when we opened the doors of our international Montessori school, cooking was one of the foundational elements of the curriculum. We didn't have textbooks, but we had sets of cutting boards and knives and Everybody participated that wanted to in not just making snacks for the day, but literally like preparing lunch. And as I said, we would have weekend workshops. I had a whole series that we called Books and Baking. We would read different、uh, children's books. We would have story time. And then we would bake something that followed the, along the lines of the story that we had just read. And then when all the cooking and baking was finished, we would clean up. And while we were enjoying our snacks, we would sit down together and read the story again. And everybody would have a better appreciation for what we had learned. And the process showed me. What I already knew as a Montessori teacher, which is that we learn in so many different ways than what we expect as adults who have attended traditional schooling, sitting at a desk and learning from a textbook and taking written tests. And that is the more we involve all of our senses, the more neural connections are made, the more meaningful and the more memorable the learning is, and the more excited. People get because they really take ownership, not just of the end result, but throughout the entire process. So the learning is truly a progressive journey, and everyone can participate from the tiniest of infants to you know, <laughs> adults who you know, can still stand and walk and participate in, in whatever manner people want to participate. And so I'm still teaching, <laughs> just like I was in the classroom all those years ago.、Um, It's just, again, the kitchen now is our classroom, thus, our kitchen classroom, and、uh, food is our medium. And we learn all kinds of amazing things. And I enjoy personally studying the culinary traditions of the different places that we land. And so I study not just in professional kitchens with chefs, but also with housewives and people who just love to cook and who have been preparing traditional dishes from their cultural heritage, like I was from the time they were young children, because there's so much to learn from that. But there's also so much fun in blurring the lines, if you will, because the food might have a history in a particular place. But as people, we move. And as our world has gotten smaller, we can move ingredients 
around the world too. And so there's no need to stay within strict lines of this has to be done in this way and with only this specific ingredient. So we prepare all kinds of meals and dishes using the ingredients that we have at our disposal, using some of the techniques and cooking methods that we learn in various parts of the world. And sometimes it's something that is strictly in this place and with these local ingredients. And sometimes we just play with whatever we have at hand. And it is so much fun. It's just a delicious way to learn. Oh my gosh, your love of life and learning is infectious. Every conversation we've had, I enjoy it so much because <laughs> there's something new that I learn about you. And there's just, you know, again, your energy, it just transfers so well. And so I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time and telling your story. And I hope and I know it will inspire someone else who is sitting probably on the fence or who's ready to go for it or is now open and attuned to unschooling and world schooling. So I will link all of Karen's information in the show notes for this episode, as well as our video when you were living in Albania. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And we had our original chat. But before we close, Karen, what do you think is next for you? Oh, goodness. You know, <laughs> I get asked that question all the time. And I just have to laugh and shake my head because, you know, as I said, when my husband and I first made the leap to move from the US to Japan, it was going to be for one year, maybe two at the outside if we really liked it. And that was the plan. <laughs> and obviously, 10 years later, that plan had changed drastically. Then, you know, when we moved from Japan to Italy, you know, we had plans to stay in Italy. There was, you know, the potential of a job that was going to keep us there in Italy. And again, plans changed. You know, the last time we made really long term plans uh, was the first time that I had been working to connect with my friend who organized this Project Family World School conference. And it was in January of 2020. And we were going to meet up with everybody in Vietnam in the fall. And obviously, everything in the world went sideways. And that didn't happen. The plan, again, changed drastically. But what gets me excited about that is the things that I had planned were still so much smaller and more limited than the plans that God had for us. Because we have done things that I could not have even imagined. And so when people ask me, what's the plan? I say, well, I have a long list now, an ever-growing list of places I would like to go, things I would like to see, activities that I would like to do. Uh, my motto right now is Semper Gumby. <laughs> I'm going to remain flexible and open to whatever opportunities happen to arise. You know, I might have an idea of something that the way I think it should go, but being flexible enough and remaining open to whatever new possibilities arise has proven so incredibly rewarding that I'm excited to see what happens next. <laughs> Well, I'm excited too, because like I said, the last time we spoke, you were in Albania, and then you jumped on here, and you were like, girl, I'm in Mexico. And I'm like, wait, what? 
So the story is still being written. Exactly. So Karen, thank you so much for being a guest on the Blacks of Global podcast. I can't wait to see and watch (laughs) this story continue to unfold for you and your family. Thank you so much for having me, Krishan. I really appreciate all that you do in enlightening more and more people who look like us about the possibilities that await out there in the wide, wide world. And I can't wait to meet others who have heard and been inspired by this podcast out here in these international streets. It might be here in Mexico. It might be in Albania. It might be somewhere else that we can't even find on a map yet. But (laughs) who knows what might happen and the magic that we can create when we come together. Thank you for listening to the Blacksley Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksleyglobal.com. It's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.